0: Alrighty, uh, okay. I always uh, enjoy being able uh, to come back here, uh, this this place. As I as I shared last time that I was here, uh, it has a special place. Uh, all of y'all do for me, uh, and so I love being able to come and to hang out and see uh, see old faces. And I don't mean old as in you know, you know what I'm saying. Um, but, uh, hey, so I'm really excited this morning because I am going to share with you uh, my favorite verses. They've my And I say verses only because it's one of those weird sections where, like, it could be a verse, but, you know, it's like two to finish the thought. And they've been my, my favorite verses ever since college, I mean, early on when I started following Jesus. Um, so uh, that, to me, is just, it's going to be a real fun thing, and I hope that they will be uh, I don't know. They they drive so much of who I am, how I see God, how I interact with him in the world. And I I hope that by the end of the day, they'll have somewhat of a similar impact on you. But before I do, there's a few things, I guess, to make some disclaimers. Uh, Oftentimes when you're somebody who's up in front of somebody speaking, there is the thing of trying to figure out, uh, you know, who's in the audience? Uh, Am I talking to primarily believers and do I make a message for believers what about people in the audience who maybe aren't or are, are questioning some things or just kind of checking stuff out for the first time? I'm just gonna be straight up uh, honest. This is a family discussion this morning. Uh, if you're here and you're you're not following Jesus, please stick around because I think that uh, this family discussion will be an interesting one uh, for you. And I, I think uh, at the end, I, I have something for you. I've got a number of questions for us to deal with this morning that we're going to have to walk through to get to where uh, where I think we need to be and the first question it, it might seem like a simple one but I want to ask you this do you believe Jesus like do you believe him or like do you really take him at his word or when there's kind of some of those difficult things from Jesus do you Do you try to explain those away? Oh, well, he couldn't have really meant that. Maybe he means this, so forth and so on. I want you to hold on to that question because that's gonna be central. And again, I know it might seem like if we're having a family discussion, that's such a simple question, why would I start there? But it's going to matter. Next, I want everybody to get out your phone, assuming that you're gonna have a smartphone. It's maybe the only time that a preacher is ever gonna tell you to get out your phone. Seriously, take out your phone. If you don't have one, congratulations. Good for you. Like, and I, I'm not being sarcastic. Good for you. But if you have your phone, take it out, and I want you to open up the camera like you're going to take a selfie. Okay? You don't have to unless you want to if you're one of those people. Um, but just, I just want you to, to look at yourself. I want you to see yourself. And And I'm going to give you about 30 seconds or so just to answer this question. You don't have to answer it out loud, but just answer this question. What do you see? Take 30 seconds or so. What do you see? (laughs) Now, I hear giggling. (laughs) And I, I don't know if that means that you're, you know... Every now and then I'm surprised whenever I see myself and I'm like, where did all that gray come from? You know what I mean? Uh, Maybe you're further along than me and you're like, there's still some dark hair there? Like, how did that happen? If you look long enough and the giggling could subside or things like that, maybe you see some blemishes. You know, maybe, I don't know, maybe you see the old crud, I left a little something in for breakfast in my teeth. You know what I mean? Uh, Maybe if you look long enough, who knows maybe you start to see some mistakes mistakes that you've made or I think if some of us are honest we might look and say I think maybe I see some mistakes that God has made I'm not saying that's true I'm just saying what do we see when we look at ourselves when we slow down the next question I have for you I'm I, after I ask it I want you to close your eyes and I'm going to give you the same amount of time to just answer this question to yourself here's the next question what does God see when he looks at you? So go ahead, close your eyes, take about 30 seconds, and just answer that question. What does God see when he looks at you? I believe the answers to these two questions um, include the first one. I, th- I think they're crucial. Uh, something we may- we maybe don't think a whole lot about, but how you see yourself is going to determine the actions that you take in a day. I remember watching a, um, a uh, an interview with Kobe Bryant, and uh, and they were talking to him about having an off game, you know, where you know, like Duke maybe, where uh, you know, shots aren't falling, uh, things like that. And and they said, so what do you do? in that moment, and he said, if I miss six shots, give me the ball. I'm I'm making the seventh. If I don't make the seventh, you better give me the ball. I don't want to be passing anybody else. I'm making shot number eight. If shot eight doesn't go in, nobody's going to see the ball. I'm getting the ball. Shot number nine's going in. Like that was his mentality. That's what made him who he was as a basketball player. That's how he saw himself. The shot is going in. But we're actually a little bit more influenced not only by what we think about ourselves, but what other people, how we think that other people view us. And this is why it's very important to understand and to have a very good uh, picture, knowing the truth of what God really thinks of us. I, I recently learned about this, and I don't know how it took me so long to hear about this. Maybe some of y'all heard about this. Uh, in the early 1980s, a team of psychologists led by Dr. Robert Cleck conducted what is called the Dartmouth uh, SCAR experiment at Dartmouth College, very original name. Uh, The goal of the experiment was to investigate the impact of the victim mindset on an individual's self-perception, behavior, and overall being. One by one, the volunteers, which were all undergraduate women, which will become obvious in just a moment, they were all brought into a room with no mirrors and a makeup artist. And uh, they were told that what the experiment was, was this makeup artist was gonna put scars on their faces. And they were going to go to job interviews because they wanted to see uh, if people were discriminated because of facial disfigurements. Now, no, no mirrors, but after the makeup artist is done, the makeup artist shows them how with these very real looking scars that are on their faces. The women get up, they know their job, they go off to go to the interview. As they're leaving, the makeup artist would say, oh, hold on, let let me just touch that up real quick. And as they were touching it up, little did they know, the makeup artist would remove the scar. So now, not only did they not have the scar, but they were going to a job interview with makeup done by a professional makeup artist. But what did they think? They thought they still had a scar. One by one, every single one of these women came back, and when they were asked what happened, they all came back and reported massive levels of discrimination. They could all point to statements that were made, looks that were given, body language, all of which uh, indicated that they were being discriminated against because of a scar on their face that they didn't have. They believed a lie about themselves. They, they assumed that the other person saw something in them that was not true, and it completely impacted the interaction that they have with them, how they saw themselves, and the whole interview process. <sighs> yeah, what we believe about ourselves is going to affect things, but I believe that what we perceive, what God sees when he, when he looks at us, is going to have a much greater impact on the way that we live life, the decisions that we make. And if we don't have an accurate picture of how God sees us, then we're going to be walking through life believing lies or at best, half-truths. Now, before you think that this morning is going to be a self-help message, <laughs> let me tell you, it's not. Um, I hope that we go a little bit deeper than that. But if at this point you're like, hey, that's all I need and I want to tune out and I want to start digging through Scripture to see what God has to say about me, I'm cool with that. All right, go have, go have some fun. because, And I, I can give you a head start. Uh, after mankind was made, that's the moment when God looked at creation and said, it's very good. Once there was something that was put here in his image. Now, yes, you go a little bit further. You read that all of our righteous works are like filthy rags. But no matter how dirty we get, Jesus looked at us and said, I'll go to the cross for that. So that's the end of the self-help and all of that. Have fun digging into more of that and trying to see how God sees you and the valuable person that you are. But. We got something else to talk about this morning, and the, for the rest of the morning, we're primarily going to be in uh, the letter of Ephesians, one of my favorite of all times. Uh, I think uh, some people love Romans as Paul's best work. You can fight me on it. It's Ephesians, um, but that's where we're going to be hanging out. But before we do, we need to we need to throw another little building block there before we get going. In Isaiah six, this really interesting uh, scene where we get. We get shown into the throne room and we read about these these creatures that have six wings and they're flying and they're covering their feet. And with two of their wings, they're, they're covering their eyes. And it, it says, uh, and they called to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his presence. If you go further on, John paints a similar picture. He's in the, the throne room there in Revelation. And he gives a little bit more detailed explanation of, of these types of creatures. Maybe it's the same ones, maybe it's not. But I'll just say, if you haven't read it, if you read it, let me, I'll tell you, if they showed up right now, every one of us would lose control of our bodily functions. Alright? They would scare the mess out of us. Alright? And these creatures, they, they were covered with all these things, and they too had wings. And being in the presence of God they could not help but take two of their wings and cover up their eyes. And day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Do you, let's not just run over it like it's a speed bump. Do you get this? These creatures would absolutely terrify us. And when they're in the throne room, when they're in the presence of God, they can't help but just close their eyes, cover them up because they can't even stand to look at the brilliance that is God and just over and over and over again say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We've got to have that as a foundation as we continue to have this discussion. Now with that, let's jump in. We're going to, uh, I'm going to start in Ephesians 5. We're going to be all over the place in Ephesians, but we're going to start in, in chapter 5 verses 29 and 30. Paul writes, after all, no one ever hated their own body, but they fed and cared for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we, family, are members of his body. If you're a follower of Jesus, let me just ask you, when's the last time you were in complete awe of that statement? We just read about the fact that we serve a God that is so amazing and big that creatures that would scare us to death can't even look at His brilliance. Yet He looks at us. What does He see? He sees His body. Somehow, we're, we're described as being joined together with this inapproachable light that holds the universe together. We are are the body of the God that other creatures don't even dare to look at. Just let that sink in for a second. I think there's so many things that Rabbi David Foreman calls the lullaby effect. We're so used to hearing things that we just breeze over the amazement that God has for us in His Scriptures. Here's what's crazy. In Exodus, God's people are wandering around and they're living in tents. And God says, hey, I want you to know that I want to be there and live with you. Build me a tent. I want a tent. I want my tent to be right in the middle of everybody because I'm accessible to you all. And after that tent was finished, we read this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle what a sight that must have been. But going forward, God's fine with his tent. this tent. This is one of those things I find really interesting. God never asked for anything more than a, a ragged old tent. But we get later on and we get David who lives in a nice palace and says, God needs a nice house too. And God's like, oh, my tent's fine. But, you know, then he's like, all right, well, Solomon ends up building this temple. And after Solomon has finished building the temple in 2 Chronicles, we read, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord, there it is again, filled the temple. The priest could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt down on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good, His love endures forever glory filled the tabernacle glory filled the tent heaven intersected with earth the only response that people had was to worship whenever heaven intersected with earth let's worship and I don't know about y'all but I'm like I read stuff like that. I'm like I want to see that like I hope when we get to heaven there's home movies you know, if somebody invents time travel, can I go back and watch it? But the thing is, is when I really sit down and think about it, as much as I want to see those things, I realize that by my desire to see those things, I've, I really kind of miss what God is doing. And I've missed the point. And if, if you're wondering where I'm going, just, just stick with me. This isn't the only time. Th- those two times isn't the only time that there was a temple that was filled. There was a Pentecost that was about 2,000 years ago. And on that day, the Pentecost, directly following the the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the apostles gather together and the Holy Spirit comes down, tongues of fire, does this sound familiar to things that we have just recently read, rests on the apostles. Peter is able to preach a message, which by the way, the day of Pentecost, the Jews uh, celebrate that as the giving of the law. And if you know, uh, Old Testament history: On the day that the law was given, three thousand people died. Little little spoiler coming ahead. Um, so he preaches, he he talks about Jesus, God's plan for the world, and they say, "Man, we're cut to the heart. What do we do?" And he said, "Repent and be baptized, so that you will receive forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." How many people that day were baptized? <clears throat> when the law came, three thousand received death. When the Spirit came, three thousand got life. And they became the beginnings of the temple. The tabernacle, the temple, the temple. Do you, do you realize the craziness of what is in our scriptures and what God sees when he really looks at us? What happens when heaven intersects with earth? I mean, it it's odd. We spend so much time thinking about escaping this place and talking about heaven. But if you really follow a thread throughout Scripture, just go with me. I'm not saying that heaven's not a real place and all those kinds of things. I'm just saying it's weird what our priorities are versus what God's priorities are. In creation, in the garden, God's walking with Adam and Eve. God has, has come here. He's wanting to hang out. We've already looked at the tabernacle. God says, hey, I want to live with y'all. Build me a tent. That he didn't ask for a temple, but he said, okay, I'll, I'll take it. Thanks for the gift. I'm going to move in. Then, if that wasn't enough, Jesus comes and actually takes on flesh, and John himself actually uses the terminology that Jesus tabernacled. He tented. He hung out with us. And then, Jesus is like, hey, i got to go so something better can come. The Holy Spirit living within you. And then, spoiler, if you haven't gotten to the end of the book, what's described as heaven isn't some far-off cloud thing. It's a renewed heaven and earth and the heavenly Jerusalem comes out from the skies and lands on earth where God's people are and there's no need for the sun. Why? Because God is there and his presence provides all the light that we need. We keep on trying to get away and he keeps on trying to come and hang out with us. It's a sermon for another day, just a little little thought for you that's free. You can spend some time working through that. Ephesians 2 19 through 22 says consequently you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in in which God lives by his spirit. Peter says it this way. I love first Peter, chapter two, verse five. You, which by the way, if he spoke English proper English, this would say y'all for a plural second person. You also, like living stones, are being built into a singular spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood. But by, by the way, holy We've turned holy into essentially just meaning, and I'm not saying it doesn't mean this. Basically, uh, don't do those sins. Like, we've, we turn holiness into like, you know, like, don't have sex, don't get drunk, don't blah, blah, blah. Holy means to be set apart. It means to be different. If you actually read where God says in Leviticus, be holy as I am holy, and then he gives a whole list of things of how he expects his people to live. There are things in there about don't put a stumbling block in front of the blind. Care about the alien, the orphan, and the widow. Uh, make sure that you leave some of the corners of your field for the poor to be able to pick. What does that have to do with not getting drunk? It doesn't but it has everything to do with being different it has everything to do with being different like our different God and by the way the job of a priest is to put their God on display. You're called to be different like our God is different and to live in such a way that you put him on display offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Have you ever have you ever stopped to actually think that you're part of an eternal plan? I mean, some of this other stuff has been like, oh, maybe I've heard this, but oh. This is where we get into my favorite verses. And sometimes when people are like, what's your favorite verse? And I say it, they're like, no, really, what's your favorite verse? It's not going to be wowing, but I think once I take the time to tell you what I see when I read this, you'll be like, oh, how why do we not talk about this? My faith I remember being in Pauline Epistles at, at RBC and uh, getting to Ephesians uh, chapter three, and it's verses ten and eleven. It's been like What is that? So I'm going to give you a little bit of context. We're going to start in in verse 8. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of God. If you're unfamiliar, unless you're Jewish, that's you. Alright? So you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. Um, uh, And to make plain to everyone the administration of the mystery which for ages was kept hidden in God who created all things. Wait for it. Two coolest verses in the Bible. His intent, his last minute ditch effort, his putting together a project the day before it's due and throwing it on the teacher's desk, his intent was that now, Not during the days of Noah, not during the days of Abraham, not during the days of Moses, Elijah. Can I even go so far as to say not during the days of Jesus? His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms who are these rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms? Like, I remember reading that and being like, no, nobody's ever talked to me about that. What does that hold? And I'll tell you, all these years later, I still don't know. According to his eternal purpose, again, Paul wants to make sure this is not a last-minute thing that God has designed, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's, let's break this down. God wanted to show heavenly beings His unfathomable wisdom. And so He said, I got the perfect way to do this. The church. Really? (laughs) That's your plan to show the incomparable wisdom that you have to these rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms is to create the church. Yeah. Through the cross... People of all races, all generations, all tribes, languages come together, completely unified, to make up the body of the inapproachable God, to be the temple, the dwelling place that He says, This is what I'm calling home. And when we live as one unified body, we preach. Just by simply the way that we live. These rulers and authorities in these heavenly realms, they find out about God's plan and his wisdom based on the way that we live. Is that not crazy? Now, if I'm completely getting this wrong, don't call me out right now. It'd be embarrassing. You can come up to me afterwards. But like I literally I have I have looked at these over and over and over again. And that's the only conclusion that I can come to. And it's so, it's so easy for me to think, oh, the angels, they know things, or they're so close to oh, it would be so cool to have this. And it's like, no, Paul's actually telling us, no, 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 no. They want to be you. Because you're actually the one who gets the inside scoop. You're the one that gets to be the house of the inapproachable God. Six times Paul uses this word mystery in his letter to the Ephesians to talk about how crazy this is. In talking about the temple, he says in verse six of chapter three, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ. Now, this took me a while, honestly, to get partially because um, I'm a little dense. Uh, If you spent time with me, I can be slow on things. Also, I think being an American um, shaped the way that I, I view things. We're a melting pot. You know what I mean? Like, it's just normal. We get people from all different walks of life and all that sort of stuff. And part of the thing is it's like, hey, bring all your stuff, figure out how to integrate it into America and, you know, be an American and make our lives a little bit more flavorful. You know, it's, it's cool. That's how it works. <sighs> to say, I, I, I think that we miss this. If you, if you read through Romans sp- very specifically, this is a Jewish story. God chose Abraham to bless the world, to be the agent that he was going to do this through. And and if you slow down enough and read in Acts, for the first probably 15 years, the church was pretty much completely Jewish. Again, we skip over this, but we read about the, the apostles going to the temple during their hours of prayer. They weren't like, oh, Jesus came, we give up all of this stuff because Jesus. No, it's like, no, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. We are Jews. God has given us a Jewish covenant. We are going to live out our Jewish life. And you get into chapter 15, and there's a problem. What's the problem? Not that Jews are giving up being Jews. All of a sudden, there's a bunch of Gentiles that want to be a part of this whole movement. And they're like, whoa, what do we do with this? Why do they have a problem trying to figure out what to do with the Gentiles if they had given up all of their Jewishness? They hadn't. Which is where the problem comes in. Because you have two drastically different cultures having to come together to be one. This means, think about this, it kind of makes my head explode a little bit. At one table, there needs to be a Jew who is keeping the law. And to honor God is not going to eat pork. Stinks for them, but that's how it goes praise the good lord as a gentile i get to sit down and i get to have some bacon some pulled pork like whatever the things are i get to enjoy that part of life and here's the thing i do it and i honor and worship god that means that the jew is abstaining from it to be able to honor and worship god i'm enjoying it as a gentile because as soon as i become a jew well then the whole mystery is destroyed the mystery isn't gentiles becoming jews the mystery isn't Jews becoming Gentiles. The mystery is how do you take something as different as the law and the Jews and the covenant that God has made with them and Gentiles and the things that seem to clash and bring them together and say, we're one body. You don't eat pork. I do. We both honor God. Neither one is any better than the other. We're both accepted and fully loved and fully indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That is mind-blowing. I mean, how many times have we looked at people that have the slightest theological disagreement with us? <laughs> we're like, oh, you can't be a Christian. Like, <laughs> they were looking at straight up, I am honoring this God-given covenant, and you, just a few years prior, I would say, are dishonoring God. And now I've got to like, flip a, a switch in my brain to say that you're honoring God, and we are brothers and equal as we come together. With God. The Holy Spirit living in them. Heaven intersecting with earth. I got to tell you, um, a large portion of, of things from this message are inspired by a book that I recently read that I had for a while and I was afraid to read because I felt that I would disagree with it. I had, I had judged it before I'd even started reading it. And it's a book called Letters to the Church by Francis Chan. Uh, And I tell you that, for one, to show you my work, to put it out before you. Uh, Two, I encourage y'all to get it. It's a pretty easy read. Uh, It is a challenging read, I think, if you truly read it. But it's a fairly easy read as far as how language goes. I wholeheartedly agree with it. The whole time I was reading it, I can't believe that I put it off because I was like, yes, yes, more people need to say this. Yes, 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 yes. Completely agree, he says... I believe we have a sacred responsibility to function as His church in such a way that the rulers in heavenly places can marvel at God's wisdom. They ought to see the oneness in us that displays God's brilliant plan. Here's the thing. They're not the only ones watching because Jesus, actually, the last night before He goes to the cross, what's one of the things He prays? I pray that they would be one. Why? Just because He wanted us to all get along? Oh, I want them to be one because then if the world can see that they're one, if they can see this impossible mystery that we have been working on for all of these years come to fruition, then maybe the world can believe that you and I are one. And maybe they'll actually be able to believe in the message that I've been preaching. They'll be able to understand what this was all about. It's not just the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. It's everybody who's watching us. Living as the temple of God preaches a sermon. But have you ever thought about the honor, the responsibility, the implications of this being the temple of God? Paul wrote this to the Corinthians chapter 3. He said, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred. What does God see when he looks at you? You're the temple. How does he view his temple? sacred. He guards over it. He takes it serious when somebody decides to attack it. You together are that temple. Now, th- this is not calling y'all out, because I, I love coming here because I love y'all, all right? I'm going to speak in some generalities of faith and what we've all experienced. It's amazing sometimes that, Christians, myself included, throughout my time, so quick to gossip, slander leadership, say things that end up dividing a church, dividing ministry that God is doing. We hold grudges. All of a sudden we see somebody in a place of leadership we don't see quite eye to eye, and we start, I don't know, building a coalition, seeing who we can get on our side to drive that person out. How many times have we seen somebody that they realize that maybe the writing is on the wall and that place isn't going to be the place for them anymore, but man, it's a scary thing to be unemployed. And you know, they still think maybe they could do something. And so, they end up again. They build their coalition and they get people. And on their way out, what do they do? They destroy a ministry. I many churches have split because of these things? We don't realize the power of our words. By the way, we're made in the image of a God who spoke creation into existence. Maybe there's something to explore about the power of our words being made in the image of a God who has power coming out of his words. Every time you and I speak evil about a member of the church, it's like taking a sledgehammer to God's temple. If you get nothing else from this morning, do you realize that? See, what you see is just somebody who annoys you. look, I'll be honest with you. And if you ask me, I'll tell you if you annoy me. A lot of people annoy me. I think there's a lot of dysfunctional personalities that I'm not sure why God made, all right? Just being honest. And I think that all of y'all would agree with me. You just might not be willing to say it in public, all right? I'm just willing to say the things that I think. But man, they're part of the body. What does God see when he looks at them? What am I doing? just have a few more questions and we start wrapping up and this part will go a little faster. What do, you, what do you expect from church? What do, what do you think that people expect from church? And for time, I'm not going to go around and, and ask the class, but 30 years of being part of the church, here's some answers that I've picked up, and you can tell me if through nods or whatever. A good service, you know? Uh, lively, age-specific ministries, you know? Somebody comes in, hey, do you have a children's ministry? Do you have a youth ministry? Do you have a seniors' ministry? Do you have, you know, whatever? a certain style volume length of music amen right you know you can't we can't have anything other than the specific music we like a well communicated sermon you're welcome for that part this morning conveniences such as parking maybe that's close by a clean church building coffee donuts childcare i mean just just keep on going with the list that, that's that's the things that we've come to expect for church right now Don't hear me say that because I'm listing these things out, I'm trying to set you up for anything to say that all those things are bad and we need to have like dirty church buildings, no parking, and you know, don't ever give anybody any sweets, Uh, although the sweets thing, but um, I know that you are a church that loves this community and you want to do things to be welcoming to anybody who would come in these doors, whether they just stumble in on their own or whether one of you takes the time to get into somebody's life and bless them and invite them in. But in all of our quest to figure out what church should have, have we slowed down to ask what I believe is a more important question? What does God expect from His church? When we dig through Scripture, do we find any commands about donuts? I mean, it would be lovely, you know? But like, we don't see that. What do we see? Love one another. Visit orphans and widows in their distress. Make disciples of all nations. Bear one another's burdens. By the way, even if you just take one another phrases in the New Testament for the church, there's 59 one another commands for the church to be followed. What is it that God cares about? Showing hospitality to one another without complaining. Love one another. We just read, bear one another's burdens. All of these things. Here's, kind of, here's one more question. Again, this isn't a gotcha. What would upset you more, or, or people in general, more? If the church didn't provide your wants, everything from the first list, or if the church didn't obey the commands that God set out from that second list? What do we spend our time complaining about? What are the problems that we have in the church? We're generally not looking at the commands that the church isn't following. They're genuinely looking at the wants and the desires to make things comfortable for us that all of a sudden isn't going our way, and we end up talking bad about people, talking bad about the leadership. We end up taking a sledgehammer to God's temple. Mm. How you answer this last question, it's going to reveal a lot. It's it's going to it's going to reveal uh, whether the church exists for God or whether it exists for people going to reveal whether you believe that the church is run by people or it's run by God. Talking about the way that we do church, uh, one last quote from Francis Chan. He says, I can't help but see our own lameness and failing to see the beauty in God's design for the church. Heavenly beings are shocked by God's church while many on earth yawn. The early church didn't need energetic music, great videos, attractive leaders, although let's admit it, it's nice to have Or elaborate lighting to be excited about being a part of God's body. The pure gospel is enough to put them in a place of awe. Aren't you at least a little embarrassed that you have needed the extra stuff? It's not all your fault. For decades, church leaders like myself have lost sight of the powerful mystery inherent in the church and have instead run to other methods to keep people interested. In all honesty, we have trained you to become addicted to lesser things. We have cheapened something sacred. And we must repent. Here's the thing that stinks. If what's important is that first list I gave you, a ministry like mine at Chapel Hill that's always been a small ministry, Ever since I inherited a small ministry, it's been a small ministry. It's the way that we do things. That means that we'll never be very effective. We'll never do much. Because we don't have the people to offer all the cool stuff. A small church might always feel like it's lacking. It can never compete with the big church down the road, and it can't offer all of those different things. it might always, I don't know, maybe be a little embarrassed or think, oh, if we could just have this, if we could just have this, then all of a sudden we could reach people and we could, we could do things. But oddly enough, God thinks a little bit differently than us. See, if the second list is the more important thing and we trust God's wisdom in the church, then that means that even a small church, even a small ministry, can have lasting ripples into eternity. And God seemed to do something about 2,000 years ago where he took 12 boneheaded guys and he gave them the most important message in the history of mankind and said, I'm putting it all in your hands for you to be able to keep this thing together, to spread the message around the world, and for the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms to see my wisdom through your actions." Now, as if I haven't been honest and you don't know that this is, if God would have asked me for my advice, and there's plenty of reasons why he doesn't, I would have very politely and reverently said, I think it's one of the dumbest ideas you've ever had. That makes no sense. To start with 12 boneheads to keep on making mistakes and you're going to put the most important message in the history of mankind in their hands? The wisdom of God is foolishness to us. I'm not saying that God is foolish. I'm saying that I would not be able to see the wonder that we see before us today. I started this morning with a question. uh, And I'm going to ask this question again. Do you believe Jesus? Do you truly take Him at His word? The last night that Jesus was with His disciples, He said to them, I can guarantee this truth. Those who believe in Me will do the things that I am doing. They will do even greater things because I'm going to the Father. We tend to look back with nostalgia and the good old days. Jesus was like, oh, I'm looking forward. Y'all are going to do even cooler stuff. The church isn't like just this like, woo, and then it fizzles. In Jesus' mind, it's like, no, it's woo, and it just keeps on going and building. do far gra- Or is this one that we want to explain away? We can't really truly do far greater things than the Son of God, right? Jesus couldn't really mean that. So let's explain that away and figure out how he didn't really mean this. When it's the last night He has with His disciples and He's saying everything that's really important, He says something that doesn't matter. Or, this is truth that we need to figure out how to, to live in our lives. Later on in this conversation in, in chapter 16, He tells them how this is going to happen. However, I tell you the truth. It's good for you that I'm going away. If I don't go away, the Helper or the Holy Spirit won't come to you. But if I go, I will send Him. If I go, then you get to be the house of the inapproachable light. And when heaven intersects with earth, some amazing things are going to happen. Here's your next steps. Here's wrapping it up. Uh, If you're a believer, go and be the masterpiece that God has designed you to be. This is one of the few times, by the way, I'm not hating on the the New Living Translation. I just personally don't like it. We've all got our preferences. Some of us are right, some of us aren't. But with the New Living Translation, this is one verse that I particularly love the way that they say it. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 10. For we are God's Masterpiece. I love that so much better than workmanship. We're his masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. Why? Just so he can have something pretty to sit on the shelf? So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Almost like it was his intent that there was an eternal purpose. That we're all. Does this stuff kind of go together? Like. I don't know if you're picking up what I'm laying down. But what are those good things? What what are those good things for Stony Brook? Here's the deal. It would be incredibly arrogant, I believe, for me to come in on a Sunday morning, as much as I love y'all, and to say, this is how you need to live out all of these one-another passages in your context in Wilson, North Carolina. I don't know those things. Y'all do. Your leadership does. And y'all need to be sitting down and having these discussions and trying to figure out What's some of these one another commands? What's some of these other commands that don't have the term one another in it, but are commands that Jesus has left for the church? What is it that we need to do? Because I believe with just a few faithful people, God can change the world. He's done it before. He's doing it now and He'll continue to do it. He's just looking for partners to join in with Him. So, go and be that masterpiece. Figure out what it is. Because here's the thing. As much as we talk about faith in God, and this might be an uncomfortable phrase, I believe, looking at this, God has faith in you. If not, why would he put the most important message in the history of mankind in our hands? He has faith that we can actually do the things that he believes that we can do. He sees so much more in us than we're able to see for ourselves. Now, as I said, if you're here and you're not part of the family of God, hopefully you enjoyed this family discussion. But I also want to just invite you to the most confusing, miraculous thing that has ever happened in the history of mankind. Join God's mission, be a part of his body. I can't imagine anything more amazing and what better way to spend your life. Because here's the deal in 150 years, nobody's going to know any of our names, statistically. But it's possible that in a couple thousand years, maybe, depending on how long the Lord takes, there will be people part of the kingdom because we're his masterpiece and we're living it out. Let me pray for y'all. Father, um, thank you for being an incredibly confusing God, um, for trusting us. And uh, I'm sorry for the amount of times in my life that I haven't recognized the wonder and the awe of who you are and and what you do. Uh, Father, I pray for this church. Uh, Father, I pray that they will be uh, fruitful in being able to share uh, Your grace, Your love, Your joy, Your oneness with this community around them. And I pray that we get to see many people in heaven because of the work of the people of this church. And it's in the greatest name of all that we pray. Amen.